1793 AD, Chinese Emperor Qian Long delivered the most fateful insult in world history. The British king had sent a request for freer trade between their countries. In response, Qian Long sent a letter declaring Britain's total inferiority before completely rejecting their proposal. Qian Long mistook China's current power for evidence of eternal exceptionalism. In doing so, he not only provoked the British military that would subjugate China five decades later, he also dismissed the mounting challenges within China that would enable Britain to do so. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises, Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. By 1793, Chan Long had ruled China for 58 glorious years, presiding over one of the world's great golden ages. Chan Long had every reason to feel on top of the world. He had extended China's borders to its all-time zenith including even the Mongolian steppe and Nepal for the first time. And life was good. Life was tranquil and people were cultured. Qianlong's grandfather had commissioned unprecedented literary achievements, including a dictionary of 40,000 Chinese characters, a collection of 50,000 poems, and most significantly, an illustrated encyclopedia with hundreds of volumes, 800,000 pages of information. That encyclopedia published in 1726, appeared a full 25 years before France published a much smaller version, the one that launched the Enlightenment in Europe. China was the world's leader. It had existed continuously for over 3,000 years. And throughout those three millennia, it had remained the center of Eastern civilization and European fascination. Qianlong had every reason to believe in Chinese exceptionalism. Meanwhile, in Great Britain, King George III had much less to brag about. Britain was on a bit of a losing streak. Not only had it lost most of its North American colonies in the American Revolution a decade prior, it also failed to win two wars against the small South Indian kingdom of Mysore. Spain and Russia were much stronger European powers, and pretty much everyone else in Europe might unseat Britain from third place. Moreover, King George was at least a little scared after French monarch Louis XVI was beheaded in January. While Britain's military may not have been winning much in the late 1700s, the British East India Company was enjoying handsome profits from trade in India, and the company wanted in on trade with China. King George sent a trusted ambassador, Lord George McCartney, to Peking along with a delegation of a hundred Englishmen and literal boatloads of the finest European goods. Their mission was threefold. First, they were to convince Qianlong to relax his trade restrictions. Second, they wanted to position a British ambassador in China. And third, they needed permission to occupy a small island where their traders could live and store their goods. Chan Long received the delegation in Peking on September 14, 1793. After impressive imperial buildup, pomp, and circumstance, including a lot of formal bowing, 
The two sides exchanged gifts and feasted together. And then Lord McCartney delivered his monarch's request. Chan Long responded with total derision. He summarily refused each and every request and ordered the immediate departure of the mission. To add insult to injury, and these were king-sized insults, he drafted a letter to King George to clearly convey his scorn. He unwittingly, therefore, enshrined his hubris for posterity. Listen to the extraordinary amount of scorn and arrogance in his message, of which the following is just a few passages. Quote, You, O king, live beyond the confines of many seas. Nevertheless, impelled by your humble desire to partake of the benefits of our civilization, you have dispatched a mission respectfully bearing your memorial. Our dynasty's majestic virtue has penetrated unto every country under heaven, and kings of all nations have offered their costly tribute by land and sea. As your ambassador can see for himself, we possess all things. I set no value on objects strange or ingenious, and have no use for your country's manufactures. It behooves you, O king, to respect my sentiments, and to display even greater devotion and loyalty in the future so that by perpetual submission to our throne, you may secure peace and prosperity for your country hereafter. Hitherto, all European nations, including your own country's barbarian merchants, have carried on their trade with our celestial empire at Canton, so that your wants may be supplied and your country thus participate in our beneficence. Our dynasty, swaying the myriad races of the globe, extends the same benevolence towards all, your England is not the only nation trading in Canton. If other nations, following your bad example, wrongfully importune my ear with further impossible requests, how will it be possible for me to treat them with easy indulgence? Nevertheless, I do not forget the lonely remoteness of your island, cut off from the world by intervening wastes of sea. Nor do I overlook the excusable ignorance of the usages of our celestial empire. I have consequently demanded my ministers to enlighten your ambassador on the subject, and have ordered the departure of the mission. It may be, O king, that the above proposals have been wantonly made by your ambassador on his own responsibility, or, peradventure, you yourself are ignorant of our own dynastic regulations and had no intention of transgressing them when you expressed these wild ideas and hopes. But the demands presented by your embassy are not only a contravention of dynastic tradition, but would be utterly unproductive of good results to yourself, besides being quite impracticable. I have accordingly stated the facts to you in detail, and it is your bounden duty reverently to appreciate my feelings and to obey these instructions henceforth for all time, so that you may enjoy the blessings of perpetual peace. Tremblingly obey and show no negligence. With these words, a country and leader convinced of its own eternal exceptionalism brushed away what it thought was a trifling irritation, believing the status quo of Chinese preeminence was divinely ordained and therefore everlasting. When Chan Long died in 1799, he died certain that China would always be the hub and center about which all quarters of the globe revolved. Just 40 years later, 
the British Royal Navy humiliated China in the First Opium War, fought from 1839 to 1842. They destroyed the Chinese Navy. They occupied Shanghai. They forced the Chinese to sign the Treaty of Nanking, which opened five Chinese ports to British trade, ceded Hong Kong, unleashed a flood of legal opium into China, and granted Great Britain most favored nation trading status. You can imagine what that meant. This launched what the Chinese called the Century of Humiliation. Imagine going from fly-swatting the British king to ceding him your sacred land and independence. But the worst was yet to come. A decade later, the Taiping Rebellion consumed China in civil war. More people died in the Taiping Rebellion than the 18 million who were to die in the First World War. The Second Opium War, which happened right after the Taiping Rebellion, exacerbated the results of the first. It didn't stop there. In the first half of the 20th century, China saw nearly constant internal warfare between thousands of warlords, further incursions by foreign powers into Beijing, truly horrific invasions by Japan, including the 1937 rape of Nanking, and abjectly failed policies such as the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Tens of millions died of famine, economic collapse, or political purge. By 1962, once dominant China was the 10th poorest country on earth, with a per capita GDP of only $550, the average person living on $1.50 per day. China's Qing Dynasty boom gave way to a tragic bust. It had only taken two generations for the power to reverse completely. Chinese society in 1793 showed the same signs of vulnerability as had so many other once mighty powers. Two Chinese predecessors followed the same pattern. Many European powers went boom and bust as well, from ancient Rome to medieval France to Shakespearean England. All these empires soared to impressive heights during their golden ages and then declined more quickly than they could have ever imagined. In every case, the internal challenges overwhelmed the empire's strengths and the trajectory of the empire reversed. So what are the steps in this cycle? These have been well described by Dr. Peter Turchin, who is one of the world's foremost mathematical historians. Let's imagine starting with a peaceful society. Peace and stability bring prosperity. Then the fairly comfortable, well-off populace begins reproducing. This increased population eventually yields an oversupply of labor, depressing wages, and increasing competition and economic distress. But low wages aren't bad for everyone. They bring a boon to the elites of society who profit off the depression of the lower classes, at least for a while. When that fails, they turn to employment by the state, driving up state expenditures while heavier taxation exacerbates popular immiseration. The state's finances eventually collapse, and thereafter it loses control of the military and police. The elites and the commoners tangle amongst themselves, the elites fomenting civil war, while the lower classes engage in riots, revolts, and rebellions. 
This is the downswing, comprised of poverty, famine, pestilence, and death. But the cycle isn't over. Poverty and suffering bring the population down as people die sooner and reproduce less. Competition among elites dies down as many of their kims succumb in one way or another. Order is restored, peace returns, and the cycle begins again. Take the case of the Mughal Empire, which dominated the Indian subcontinent in the 1600s. It particularly flourished under Akbar. Under his rule, intellectualism and religious tolerance thrived. Unfortunately, a few generations later, his great-grandson ruled over the empire cruelly and unwisely. Aurangzeb persecuted non-Muslims and created widespread economic misery. When he died in 1707, having completely failed to manage his empire's size and diversity, the empire broke apart into multiple successor states, which fought amongst themselves as well as with the Europeans for territorial control. When the British East India Company won the Battle of Plassey near Calcutta in 1757, they gained a strategic foothold in the east, launching what would become the British Empire in India. This foothold would become the boot that would crush China a century later. The other great powers that rose and fell generally followed the same path, a golden age of one to two centuries followed by decline and a tragic end. Perhaps the most famous example is ancient Rome, which went through the cycle at least four times. After Nero ran the empire into the ground in 68 AD and civil war broke out, Rome picked itself up and settled on a system by which leaders were chosen for merit rather than nepotism. Imagine that. The so-called five good emperors then presided over Rome's golden age which lasted just under a century from 96 to 180 AD. It was during this time that Rome reached its all-time territorial zenith, extending from England to the Persian Gulf. But alas, after the fifth good emperor, Marcus Aurelius, died and left power to his son Claudius, yes, the same two characters in the otherwise fictional Russell Crowe movie, civil war began again and Rome would never be the same. As Turchin describes in his book, underlying these cycles were the three factors that bring about all demo crises. Overpopulation, elite conflict, and popular immiseration. It's true that Claudius was vain and incompetent, but he also inherited challenges that even his father wasn't wise enough to foresee. It is tempting now to visit the many great civilizations that also followed this hubristic path. But instead of going through the details of each civilization with unjust brevity, let's examine the boom and bust of two contemporary civilizations from the East and West. Our Western example is the rise and fall of Shakespearean England. The century of Shakespeare's glory, in fact, lies sandwiched between two full centuries of civil war. That story begins in 1500, toward the end of Henry VII's reign. Henry VII had taken over from Richard III, one of Shakespeare's great villains, who was killed in the last decisive battle of the Wars of the Roses, the series of civil war between York and Lancaster that lasted 30 years and themselves followed the Hundred Years' War with France. In short, the 150 years before Henry VII was essentially all bloodshed. Henry VII inherited the end of a cycle, 
which like all the others, thinned out the population and gave it a chance to recover. According to Dr. Turchin, at the beginning of the 1500s, quote, England was at peace internally and externally. This was the best time for the little people, their true golden age. Wages were good, food prices low, epidemics declined, and the strong states suppressed banditry and put a lid on the noble violence, end quote. But these factors led to familiar exponential population growth, which had the predictable consequences of societal boom and bust. Shakespeare was born in the middle of this curve in 1564 and reached his peak of stardom around 1600, lasting until his death in 1616. The glory of the 1500s are eternal, gifting us Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, and all his other work. During the century between Henry VII and Shakespeare, however, the population of England doubled and the workers' purchasing power decreased by half. During Shakespeare's time, the aristocracy consumed conspicuously, wearing extravagant costumes with 12-inch crowns and taxing their peasants harder and harder. The intra-elite competition of the early 17th century increased the general misery of the peasantry and strained the country's finances. King Charles I ascended to the throne in 1625 and attempted to extract even more wealth from the population than his father had. In 1640, Charles needed to finance war against Scotland, but lacking finances requested Parliament for new taxes. When they refused but instead aired their grievances, he dismissed them. In 1642, the widespread misery erupted into the English Civil War, which resulted in 190,000 deaths, Charles's beheading, the subsequent dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell, and after him, the reinstitution of the monarchy under his son and grandson. All these rulers tried to extract as much or more wealth from the suffering masses as had their predecessors. It was a bloody and miserable century, ending in yet another revolution in 1688. This so-called glorious revolution finally put an end to the English misery and launched the societal boom that made England the global superpower that would subjugate first India and then Chan Long's China 150 years later. So that's our Western example. The boom and bust of our Eastern example is approximately contemporaneous with it, and Chan Long had no excuse not to know about it. It's the Ming Dynasty in China, the one his own ancestors conquered. The Ming Dynasty has been called by one historian, quote, one of the greatest eras of orderly government and social stability in human history. The word Ming itself means bright. Both the Great Wall and quintessential advances in Chinese art date to the Ming Dynasty, which lasted the familiar length of two to three centuries from 1368 to 1644. The Ming presided over long periods of peace, both foreign and domestic. But during this period of peace and tranquility, the Chinese population grew rapidly. Then, a decline in the silver supply from the New World caused a financial crisis and increased tax burden on the peasants. The elites especially overpopulated, with many members of the Ming lineage producing around 50 children each, massively overstretching the state stipends. Crop failures, famines, and diseases like smallpox and plague followed. The military became lazy and consumed by political intrigue. 
provincial revolts grew into massive barbarian raids. And among these barbarians were the Manchus, a warlike people of completely different ethnic and linguistic origin to the Northeast in the region we now call Manchuria. The Manchus were Qianlong's ancestors. By the time the Manchu conquerors arrived in Beijing suburbs, the Ming were depleted of resources, power, and cohesion, and simply melted away. But while the Manchus delivered the final blow, the Ming's internal rot was the first and foremost cause of their demise. The constant Manchu and Mongolian molestation of the preceding centuries did not humble the Ming until they had done it to themselves. As one historian succinctly concluded at the end of his 26th civilization study, quote, civilizations die by suicide, not by murder. So here's my thesis. The unvarnished truth is that no empire has extended a golden age of peace and prosperity for more than a few centuries. Try to think of one. The Qing Dynasty is but one of many prototypical examples. Here is how one 16th century observer explained the pattern. Quote, Peace brings plenty. Plenty makes pride. Pride breeds quarrel. And quarrel breeds war. War brings spoil. And spoil poverty. Poverty patience. And patience peace. So peace brings war, and war brings peace. End quote. That's from Turchin's excellent book, appropriately named War and Peace and War. These factors were already playing out in China when Lord McCartney arrived. The culprits? The familiar factors of overpopulation and mass hardship. Farm sizes were shrinking as families grew. People were in debt and foreclosures caused increasing distress among the peasants. Sound familiar? Meanwhile, land was accumulating in the hands of the elites, who pushed the tax burden onto the shoulders of the already suffering masses. And the peasants responded to these circumstances by either smoking opium or engaging in widespread rebellion. Sound familiar? Opioid addiction, foreclosures, corruption, rising inequality, conspicuous consumption among elites, mounting national debt, widespread suffering of the lower middle classes. Sound familiar? The parallels between Qianlong's China in 1793 and present-day United States disturb. Furthermore, recent rhetoric about American exceptionalism and transparently empty promises to restore a glorious past you know what I'm talking about. These attitudes recall the Chinese arrogance of the 1790s and that of so many other once great empires. Perhaps most foreboding of all is the realization that the cycles of boom and bust tend to occur in two to three centuries, which is about how long both the Ming and Qing dynasties lasted. Today, the United States is 242 years old. So, can America do what no society has done before and avoid repeating this hubris? Or will America go the way of every previous empire, possibly soon? Dr. Peter Turchin is just the person to ask. He's a mathematical historian and author of the book, War and Peace and War, 
The Rise and Fall of Empires, along with a half dozen other books and hundreds of scientific articles. Dr. Turchin has mathematically described how structural factors naturally interact to foster the rise and fall of empires. Central to Dr. Turchin's theory is a concept we must introduce, an Arabic term, asabiyya, which roughly translates to a sense of shared purpose within a society to solve complex problems. Who first noticed its importance? None other than 14th century Tunisian scholar Ibn Khaldun, who noticed that societies can only grow beyond their tribal borders if they find ways to work across tribe and space to solve their increasingly complex challenges. It tends to form at frontiers between civilizations, when each has a common enemy. For example, the Chinese against the Mongols, the Romans against the Germanic tribes, even the United States against Native Americans. But within these growing empires lie the seeds of imperial decline. Once overextended and overpopulated and without a common enemy, a large and diverse society squabbles internally over increasingly scarce resources. Indeed, Asabiya is the secret sauce that predicts whether a nation will rise or fall. In his even more recent book, Ages of Discord, published right before the 2016 American elections, Dr. Turchin shows that the present-day American democracy is repeating the same patterns as all these other societies, just like America did in the 1850s, right before the Civil War. Back then, inequality rose, the average person's life got progressively worse, elites mobilized the masses against each other until civil war finally erupted. If you had today's scholarship about the rise and fall of empires back then, you might have predicted it, even though most Americans at the time had no idea what they were about to experience. We are living today at perhaps America's lowest ever level of asabiya. Congress can't agree on anything, even elementary facts. So I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Turchin to the podcast so we can find answers to these existential questions. In our next episode, we'll have the full interview with Dr. Turchin and his latest research on solutions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.